Well, it is good to be back together on this Lord's Day, and we're going to continue our study in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So today we're going to be in chapter 16, starting in verse 18, and then we're going to walk all the way through chapter 18. That's our plan for today. And really, if even putting this under one theme, all of it, much of it, is related to Israel's leaders. So as we walk through, that's going to be our organization this morning, is just instruction to, to Israel's leaders. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll uh, walk through this text together. Lots to observe this morning, by the way. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning, thankful that we can gather, thankful that we can worship you. <clears throat> for the people of God, we're thankful that we can be brought into, that we are brought into a right relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're able to approach you rightly. And so I pray that you would be glorified through all that takes place <clears throat> this morning. We're thankful for the text that we'll be looking at today as we think carefully upon your plans for Israel as they are to enter into the land and and just your goodness on display in, in how your wisdom that is given to Israel and how the leaders were to lead. So we think, we're thankful for this time that we can spend together in Deuteronomy this morning. Be glorified through our study. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you have to forgive me all of a sudden. I got this weird cough thing that's going on right when I put the microphone on. So I hope I hope uh, settle in here. Maybe Maybe need some water in a little bit again, but uh, I just hope I'm not coughing in your ear the whole, this whole morning. So today we're looking at what I said, Deuteronomy 16, 18 and following. And, and really the, this section focuses in on authority. And we haven't necessarily always, it hasn't been as obvious always, but in this second giving of the law, as we walk through uh, Deuteronomy, you know, Deuteronomos, like the law, second giving of the law, there really has been this organization of, of walking through the Ten Commandments. And so even as you think through instruction, further instruction given regarding authority, this really would match up well with the Fifth Commandment. And, um, and so then you, you, are, you are thinking here of, of just God's blessing on authority and our right posture of embracing authority. And so Israel was to embrace authority. And so the, the leaders that are given, there's instruction given on the qualifications for various leaders and the right response to various leaders. And so as we walk through, we'll see instruction regarding judges, um, kings, priests, prophets. And so we're, we're given instruction regarding these different different leaders in Israel. And so what's helpful even to recognize here, if there's instruction given about what these leaders are to look like and how they're to operate, we're recognizing that, that God in his graciousness to the nation of Israel, he's chosen a people for his own possession and he's given them a land. And so they're about to go into the land, but it's not just unplanned what's going to take place. And I was even listening to 
Dr. Moeller up in Louisville, he was even interacting with this text, just pointing out that this is not a social experiment where they're just going to kind of go in and, and do what seems to work and adjust accordingly. No, God has given them a plan. And so here's what it's going to look like as they enter in. And so even when you start thinking of it, well, how, how are laws going to be carried out? Who's going to enact different uh, instruction, commands, um, discipline? All, how's this, what's it going to look like? And so that, that's what's going to be described here in this section. And so again, that this is God's instruction. And there's really much for us to unpack. Because even this first group, when we start looking at judges, you can think about a very popular word today. It's justice. And so there's a, there's a cry uh, in everyone for, for justice. What does justice look like, though? What does the Bible say about justice? And so when we walk through these first several verses in chapter 16 of our section, I really think there's some significant implications for thinking rightly about what justice looks like even in our society today. Certainly, Israel was this theocracy, and so this is what judges were to look like in Israel. But so much for us to unpack since it's based on God's righteous judgment uh, good judges reflect God's character. And so we, we can really identify what biblical justice would look like even for us as um, you know, citizens of, of even what our country. So let's think through what justice looks like. And so we'll talk about that when we get into verses 18 through 20. Um, as we keep moving through, um, you're just going to see many instructions that are given to Israel that sadly, as you walk through the history of Israel— they did a pretty poor job of carrying out what was, was commanded. So if you think of the paradigm that was even given to them, to hear and to obey and then be blessed. And so as you walk through and you, and you see that they are given instruction that they don't hear and they don't obey. And so there were consequences for their failure to keep um, these commands. Uh, so... Let's think about that as we walk through today. And then also, I think it's interesting as we walk through these different areas, some of it is going to be very repetitive. And you almost want to step back sometimes and ask, why the repetition? Why do we, it's not even just repeated for us, right? This would be very repeated instruction for the nation Israel. So you're even thinking, what's the purpose of reminding over and over, repeated instruction, what might that be a hint at for the reader? Really, there would be several answers here, but what just comes to mind when you keep seeing in the wisdom of God, much repeated instruction, what should that key the reader into? Important. It's important, right, very much. This is, if it's there, it's important. If it's repeated, it's very important. What about even Israel? What, what might they think is, he keeps reminding of this, this a lot to us. I think it might be a clue that this is going to be an area that they're very vulnerable. And so they need to take seriously uh, these reminders about what not to do and what to do. And so I think that will be important for us as well. Um, and then I'm really excited where we'll end at the end of chapter 18. This has come up over the last couple months several times in the Gospel of John. And, and so Rod has been pointing to, 
often to this reality of this long-awaited prophet, this new prophet like Moses that was to come. And, and we see that in the Messiah, that it was Jesus. And so in Deuteronomy 18, we're going we're gonna to be given this uh, instruction of what this new prophet like Moses would look like. So let's dive in then. We'll walk through quite a bit of text, and we'll start in Deuteronomy 16. Let's look at 18 through 20. I'll go ahead and read. You have on your handout an opportunity just to fill in some blanks. Just want us to kind of be active in our observations, but, but our goal this morning is not just to fill in blanks. I hope it's going to be helpful and, and profitable to think carefully about these subjects. But as I read 18 through 20, let's just observe what righteous judges shall not do, okay? What would be some things that righteous judges are not to do? Okay, so here we go. 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy 16. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So before I go on, we'll just stop there to say, here is the job description for the judge. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. I have more to say about that, but let's go ahead and finish this section. Okay, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you, is giving you. Okay, so judges are to judge the people with righteous judgment. And so we're even recognizing here a description like that. Righteous judgment is God's judgment. In fact, turn over, turn back to Deuteronomy 10. I saw this not, not very long ago. We were in Deuteronomy 10. Look what we learn about God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So God is just. He is righteous in his judgments, and his righteous judgment is characterized by what we read in verse 17. He is not partial, and he takes no bribe. And so here, when we start looking at the job description of a righteous judge, these judges that would be appointed by, uh, for, for Israel, what was it that righteous judges shall not do? Pervert justice. Very good. So the beginning of 19, and we're actually going to see what um, perverted justice would look like by, the, by what else they're not to do. What, so they're not to pervert justice. They're not to partiality. show partiality. And they're not to accept a bribe. Okay, let's, let's walk through this just to think. If a, a righteous judge who's going to act rightly judge in accordance to God's standards. He's not going to pervert justice. And the way that justice was often perverted, the way that justice is often perverted, is through these two categories that we read about of showing partiality, accepting bribes. Um, 
why I think this is instructive today, we might use words sometimes that aren't entirely biblical, but they, they match up with, with what we identify as a problem. And so if you think of what is going on in our society today, where, where the, if there's a two wrongs don't make a right, this would be what we would know from our childhood, you never repay evil for evil. And what is happening in our society, I think in this cry for justice, is a misstep, an error, um, sinful in making two, trying to attempt to make two wrongs convert into a right by repaying evil for evil. What I mean by that is if you can look back and see the way that someone has sinned against another, and certainly we can look back and think of, think of ways that there indeed has been injustice. And so to right that wrong, what the attempt today often is to do is to show partiality. And so, so if you start thinking of this oppressor and oppressed language of, of an attempt to pursue justice, you're saying that those who have been oppressed uh, cannot and will not act in a way that is um, sinful because they've been oppressed. Oppressors are those who sin against others. So let's right the wrong by, by switching the paradigm out so that the, the oppressed are now shown partiality and oppressors are now looked down upon. And so what I think you're seeing here is partiality being the response to uh, racist issues in the past, racist things that still abound today. There's partiality that is shown to those who have been oppressed in a way that is not just. And so we really have to guard against that and be careful. What does the Bible say to do in order for justice to be parsed out rightly? Righteous judgment is to show no partiality. So we don't show partiality to rich. We don't show partiality to poor. We don't show partiality to one ethnicity or another. We treat everyone with equality, and I just think that's very instructive for us. Don't pervert justice by showing partiality. Righteous judges shall not show partiality. Righteous judges also shall not accept a bribe. It's interesting how offensive bribes are to God. Look over to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17, 23, we're told, this is very much a characteristic of the wicked. Uh, Proverbs 17, 23 tells us that the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So what's, what's one of the uh, characteristics of someone who's wicked? Well, they pervert justice. And the way that they pervert justice is by accepting a bribe in secret. And so it may make for a fascinating novel to read of, of a judge who accepts a bribe and carries out a judgment that is not just. Um, and there's all sorts of legal fiction and legal nonfiction that we read about where judges accept bribes, where um, defendants either bribe juries in a positive way or they bribe them in a negative way, like a Jimmy Hoffa kind of like a, hey, do you care about your knees? You know, then you're going you know, you're gonna, to you're going to decide a particular way um, on my, my uh, accusation. We... Uh, we are not to accept bribes because that influences our decision. Uh, for a judge in a legal setting to accept a bribe would, would um, pervert justice. Uh, and, and so let a righteous judge doesn't pervert justice, so there's no room for partiality and certainly no, um, 
not, they are not to take a bribe. Do not accept a bribe. Okay, just for purposes of, of walking through all this, let's move on then to really what at first might look like it's a little bit out of place, but I think it's going to provide for us a case study in continuing this thought of what does justice look like. In fact, if we're going to carry, if we're not going to pervert justice, if we're going to make decisions based on right thinking and, and, and uh, just decisions, what does that demand? What, what, does, uh, what does justice look like? And this next section, I believe, shows us. So, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, so this is not random here to start talking about, again, a reminder of what is an abomination to the Lord. If they do something that's an abomination to the Lord, they are to be purged from their midst. So if somebody is accused of doing something that's an abomination to the Lord, we want to make sure that that is a just accusation. So read on to this next section. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any other host of heaven, which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So according to this section, what does justice demand? Verse four tells us, Thorough That's a very good, very good statement there. You said thorough inquiry. Yeah, like a careful investigation. Uh, I think my translation said inquire diligently. So, so you can't just throw out something and, and you got no evidence for it. Uh, you, you just, maybe you just heard gossip, rumor mill type stuff. No, these accusations must come from careful um, investigation. Okay, what else do we see about what justice demands? There's a, even before you get to what to do, there's a structure. There's a real structure that you have to walk through to do this. There's a hole. The structure of the system and there's subpoints under that structure. And, yeah, so just even helpful, just think there's structure here in, in um, to, these are to be, in order to judge righteously, it has to be done thoughtfully. It has to be done carefully in accordance with God's character. And so then justice is going to demand then um, structure that is careful investigation. And that careful investigation is brought upon based on what they've heard from in verse six. That's right. Two or more eyewitnesses. And then what role for Israel, is that accuser going to play in 
carrying out this justice. The accuser faces the accused. Uh, I think that's significant to think through in the wisdom of God. What would happen then? What would a false accuser ultimately be guilty of if, if they make a false accusation and it's carried out through to the end? What is a false accuser now? A murderer, right? So if you, if you come out and you make a false accusation, and we, we see even today, when you think of the blessing of justice and, and God who is just, when you start looking at it, anything that has happened that has been an injustice really is an offense. And so when you see someone who was found guilty of something that, that they were not guilty of and it's destroyed their life, you, you hate hearing things like that. But think of it like an, accuse, an accusation that was made falsely can destroy someone's life. And so you're seeing here, they, they, they took great pains to make sure that there was no accusations that were just thrown out willy-nilly like no an accuser was gonna have to face the one that they accused and in the wisdom of God a false accuser would end up being a murderer if they were to carry out this to um, what what we read of in in these verses that this this accuser would be the one who throws that first stone so we're just seeing um, God cares greatly about justice what is biblical justice though there's no room for partiality and a and no room for bribes. Uh, justice demands careful investigation, two or more eyewitnesses, and um, an honest, accurate accusation. And what is the result of all of this careful attention to justice in the verses that we have in front of us? The section ended with a statement that's repeated from other sections, and it's going to happen several times today as well. What's the end result of carrying out um, biblical justice? Purge the evil from your midst. That's right. So uh, we're going to see again when that statement is repeated here in uh, the next section, you're reminded that when you purge the evil from your midst, it produces in the people of God a fear of God um, and a desire to please God. So a fear of the Lord is what is produced through purging the evil from your midst. Okay. So now let's move into the next section regarding Kings. Ah, uh, you know what? I, I don't have it in your handout, but it's interesting. There's this next section here um, speaks of, let's say, if, there's, if there are difficult cases that are brought forth, there's a section here on these legal decisions that would be brought about by, carried out by, enforced by priests and judges that would be appointed. And uh, ver- verse 9 is very interesting. So Deuteronomy 17, 9, it says that and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days and you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. Well, what's interesting in this section about these legal decisions regarding difficult cases, there was something set up to enact a decision based on a difficult case. And this decision would be from the Lord because um, these decisions were made carefully and in a just way. And so anyone who would resist such a verdict, they are acting in a presumptuous way on the Lord. Look at down at the end uh, of this section. It says, the man who acts, um, is this verse 12, verse 11? 
The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So I think here you're seeing just a championing, embracing of authority. You know, you're recognizing here, like if, if this... If this right authority acts in a right way, judges justly, and you resist that authority, you are resisting God. To resist this authority is to act in a presumptuous way. To act in a presumptuous way is to fail to observe your role, fail to observe the limits of what has been permitted to do. So you cannot resist this verdict because this verdict is from God. And so it says, the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. And so you're seeing the importance of leaders leading well, leaders leading righteously and um, leading in light of, as representatives of God. And, and so th- this, um, this right leadership, this just leadership is um, to obey them, it's to obey God. And to disobey them is to act presumptuously. So an interesting caveat that's given here for Israel on these difficult cases, that these, uh, how the decisions were to be made in these difficult cases. Okay, marching through still to the, this next part. And I really, because again, we want to get to this, this prophet um, at the end here to look at a, a new prophet like Moses. But let's talk about kings real quick. I meant to bring, in fact, a, I, have, I have a set of what are called journables. Uh, and what it is, it's a whole bunch of blank paper, okay? But it, it's a journal that, that has marked out an opportunity for you to like write out the scriptures. And so I bought a whole bunch of journables on Proverbs that I often would give to graduating seniors in high school. And and so what it is, it's a journal that on one side, there's space for handwriting out the text of Proverbs. And on the other side of the book is this blank page to just take notes on Proverbs. And so what I had intended on doing, I give them to the seniors in high school, but I also bought copies for each of my sons where I was writing the text of Proverbs on the right side and then had blank space on the left for, for me to take notes on Proverbs and also for my sons to take notes on Proverbs. But what's interesting is this journable series is, is called, uh, well, it's called Deuteronomy 17, uh, is it 18, 17, the 17, 18 series. For some reason, my mind just went blank. Um, but it's based on what we're about to read here in Deuteronomy 17 about the role of a king, one of the things that the king is to do is that they are to hand write out a copy of the law. And so when you see in Deuteronomy 17, 18, it says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law. Uh, that's why this journal is called the 1718 series, because they're just looking at this, this command that the kings were given to hand write the law, and so then they base this journal on the opportunity for us to handwrite the scriptures. Anyway, let's look then at these laws concerning Israel's kings, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land, and let's pause again just to recognize the timing, they have not yet entered into the land, but it is set what, what it's going to look like. They're going into the land, and they have a plan for what it's going to look like. 
when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not, uh, I'm sorry, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay, so as we, as we look in this section, we, we've talked already about what a judge is to look like. Now what do we see about in regards to the qualifications for Israel's king? What are some of the qualifications that we read in that section regarding Israel's king? What do we read in verse 15? He said God's choosing. That's right. So that's significant. We start there. That Israel's king is going to be of God's choosing, whom the Lord your God will choose. So God chooses. Not a foreigner. Not a foreigner. Interesting. So, so he's, he is to be uh, um, one of them. You may not put a foreigner over you. He is who is not your brother. So not a foreigner. The king of Israel is not to be a foreigner. Verse 16. Not self-interested. Okay, tell me, um, tell me where you're seeing that here, because that's a good comment. 16, so he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. That's right. So it's interesting when you say like self-interested, like it, you know, trying to make himself great, uh, looking out for what's, what would make him look great. What, what would be even the specific um, thing not to do in verse 16 when you're even saying not self-interested? What is the, what is the exact um, thing specifically that he is not to acquire? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Verse 16 talks about not acquiring many horses. What's, what's the issue here? Why, why, should, uh, why should this be taken seriously? What, what are we getting at here when we're saying don't acquire many horses? Don't return to Egypt. Okay. Well, trust in God. That's right. Okay, so now we're going to start getting at the heart of it. All these comments are very good, but you're recognizing, and we have even, I think I wrote the cross-reference down, we could look at Psalm chapter 20 and see David's even comments here to think through that there's going to be a mindset of a king to not put his trust in the Lord, but to put a trust in the size of his army, the size of his, how many resources he has, um, those type of things. And so, um, Many trust in chariots, okay? Some trust in chariots, but that the king's trust, Israel's king's trust is not to be in chariots. It's not to be in horses. The king's trust is to be in the Lord alone. So, uh, Jim, you're right too, though. What you say, if, if they're going to acquire um, more horses, there's going to be this reason to go back to Egypt, maybe to get more horses. They're not to go back to Egypt. But, but the emphasis here is on their... The king is not to be preoccupied with making him, himself look great and acquiring an army that he can put his trust in. 
His trust is to be in the Lord. So verse 16 says, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire said horses, right? Okay, so Israel's king is to be a king who God chooses. Israel's king is not to be a foreigner. Israel's king is not to be preoccupied with uh, acquiring more horses to put his trust in. Uh, What else is Israel's king not to do? Yeah, not to acquire many wives. And again, it's probably multi-layered here in in the consistent um, commands of Scripture. But what are we actually really getting at in verse 17 when when you see a prohibition like that? Why is the king not to get many wives? (laughs) That's right. So this is, now it certainly would be true that um, that this would be even just instruction in regards to polygamy. Genesis is clear. God's good design for marriage is one man, one woman. Uh, and so then it is confusing when you read of these polygamous marriages of um, even godly kings, but uh, you can't look at those things and say, see, God approves of this. No, there's going to be consequences for these sinful decisions. But here in Deuteronomy 17, I think Rick's right, we're seeing here instruction given that just as much as, you know, horses are a neutral thing, right? But they're not to acquire many horses because if a king that's preoccupied with acquiring horses is preoccupied with trusting in his own resources. So then at the same time, a, a king that is preoccupied in acquiring many wives, he is trying to align himself with other pagan nations, nations that are not God's chosen nation, and he's going to align himself with other nations, probably accepting bribes from other nations, all sorts of ways that this would cultivate injustice, poor decisions, um, and just ungodly alliances. Um, they would be, he would be unequally yoked with other nations. And so the king was not to acquire for himself uh, many wives for himself. There's a spiritual issue in this too, though. And we're going we're gonna to turn um, to Sol- uh, Solomon's testimony here. Uh, tragic testimony to look at this in a minute. But even it alludes to it at the end of verse 17. It says, after he, sh- he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And so the king's heart is to be after God. The king's heart is to be after God alone. And so he's not to go after many wives, not to acquire wives for himself so that his heart is not pulled away from obeying, from hearing the words of God and obeying the words of God and being blessed by God. That's what the king is to do. Multiple wives will um, turn his heart away from the Lord. So not to acquire many wives. And then the second half of 17 tells us one other thing that the Israel's king is not to do. It's again, like, Ken, yeah, you're just saying, again, this is the same as horses, the same, the same as multiple wives. This would be here, finances here to acquire silver and gold so that you're trusting in your possessions rather than trusting in God. Trusting in your nation's wealth rather than trusting in God to provide. Uh, and so the godly king, Israel's king, is not to acquire many horses, not to acquire many wives, not to seek out excessive silver and gold. Okay, so with that, let's just pause for just a moment. Turn to the right just a bit, and let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. I mean, if you think of that list there of what a godly king is not to do, seek out 
horses, wives, wealth. And you think of how Solomon started with um, what he sought out uh, an excess of. It was wisdom. You know, he wanted God's wisdom. And so when you turn to 1 Kings 11 and think of what has happened in the reign of Solomon to get him to the point of what we're reading in verses 4 through 8, indeed, it, it is tragic. It can be even be confusing to think through how this wise king could end up acting in such an ungodly way. But you're seeing that his heart indeed was turned away from God. And, and so look at maybe, I was going to say four. We could go ahead and start in verse 3, though. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. I mean, just so, so I said... Some of what we're reading is repetition. And why is the repetition here? We have to be mindful that, that, we're gonna be, that Israel's going to be vulnerable in these ways. And so then to think of Israel's wisest king, Solomon, and these reminders of what a king is to do, what a king is not to do, the worship that is to take place, the worship that is not to take place, the destruction that is to take place when they enter into the land so that they do not tempt themselves to go and worship the way that the pagans worshiped. And so here you see Solomon doing everything that they were commanded not to do in regards to the Ashtaroth, in regards to marrying multiple wives, in regards to allowing these pagan um, wives to turn his heart from God. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And so he does these abominable things. I mean, even when you read of the, uh, the high place that is built in verse seven, and, um, it's done for his foreign wives. Verse eight tells us, so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. He's setting up places for this pagan worship for his pagan wives that he married in rejection of what was commanded in Deuteronomy 17, and now we're going to move into another related qualification for the king that very much would apply to the life of Solomon. Israel's king was to take this law and not just know it, not just hear it, um, in order to make sure that they know it and hear it and then obey it. They are to be people of the book. So look what is commanded of Israel's king in, in Deuteronomy 17. So I will, I will jump in here at verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn 
to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So we need to fill in a few blanks, but then let's think of the fruit of these qualifications as described at the end of, of this section. So we've said that Israel's king is to be a king who God chooses, not a foreigner, doesn't acquire many horses, doesn't acquire many wives, doesn't acquire excessive wealth. And then we're told in, um, in, uh, in the, these verses, what is he to do? I, I think on your handout, this is 19 and 20, but really you need 18 through 20. Um, what is he to do? There, there's two errors on your handout I'm noticing. That cross-reference to 1 Kings needs to be one thing up in, in regards to verse 17. But then... Um, where it says 19 and 20, we're actually looking at verses 18 through 20. What is this positive command of, of Israel's king? What is Israel's king to do? Really, it could be summarized by saying, be a, be a man of the word. He's to know the word. And one of the best, a practical way to know the word is to have actually carefully written out the word. Um, let me tell you a problem with that journal I was telling you about earlier. Uh, you make scribal errors okay when you're writing and then you have to like either scratch it out or or just you know I don't know so anyway I'm just saying we can make mistakes so look what's interesting look at what the is described in verse 18 it's not just an assignment that he's to go and like write it out he's to do it carefully because look what is to happen he shall go ahead Rick yeah that's right he shall write for himself in the book a copy of the law and this careful copy that the king writes is to be approved by the Levitical priests. Uh, and so I think you see some practical application of one of the ways to, to have the word of God written on your heart, you know, is physically, you know, write it out so you see it. Maybe even you mentally can picture what you've read it, you've written it, you're meditating on it. Writing out the scriptures is a practical way to, to know the word. But then as you move through here on really the heart of the matter with the king, not that he's just supposed to have great penmanship with no scribal errors that the Levitical priests approve of, but this king is to know the word and he's to obey the word and he's to love the word. And so in verse 19, it says, this word is gonna be with him. Uh, it shall be with him. He shall read it. Uh, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a, the king who leads well is the king who knows the word and is in the word, who's reading the word, we're told. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And so here we go. And I said, what's the fruit of a godly king who is a man of the word? You're told here in this section that someone who spends time in the word is humbled by the word and learns to fear the Lord his God by keeping all of it. Verse 19 tells us, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing him, doing them. And so then verse 20 just tells us like, you know, we're not just looking for just duty to make ourselves feel better. Oh, I spent time in the word today like I'm supposed to. I'm told to, so I'm just gonna do it. Now I feel better about myself because I did what I'm supposed to do. But no, that's not how the, how the word, how the spirit of God works through 
the, the careful study of the word, look at verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God works through the word. The, the spirit humbles the reader. Um, a wise king is gonna be humbled by God's word so that a wise king is then gonna receive correction from others. Look at what it even says, uh, that he may not be lifted up above his brothers. You know, too good for counsel, too powerful for input, um, too omniscient for learning anything. No, the king is going to be humbled to receive instruction. And so the word of God works in the heart of the king, the king who is a man of the word. So that really is the summary of the qualification of Israel's king. It's a king who is a man after God's own heart. And so the king is not to acquire things that are going to pull him away from God. And Solomon is a sad testimony of how that happened. So the king is to be a careful king who, who um, seeks to obey everything written in the word of God. So he needs to know the word of God. So he's to write the word of God and he's to write it accurately. And then he's to read it carefully and every day of his life, all the days of his life is what it says. All right, have to keep, oh my goodness. Well, did we make it through half of this? Yeah, I was really feeling like I was like marching through this. I was like, we're gonna, we're gonna get it. It's just, that was a lot of text. We, we're not gonna fly through chapter 18 because it's just so important. Um, so what we'll do is we'll focus on that next week. But here's what's, I'll just leave us with this. When we're going to see the importance of obeying God and you're seeing, seeing the right response to righteous ju judgment, like you obey the verdict, it's, uh, you're acting presumptuously not to obey God's gracious provision in this, the, um, in this godly justice that was implemented. Then in chapter 18, you're going to see the importance of obeying what the prophets command. So, so what the prophets say you obey because to obey the prophets was to obey God. So what a blessing it is from God to then give them an ability to be able to discern between a false prophet and a true prophet because they were to obey the prophets. And so in chapter 18, as we walk through this, um, we're going we're gonna to see categories of, of false prophets prophets. And so that's how the section really ends in verses 20 through 22. But prior to that, there's just a really a beautiful um, type of Christ that we are told of this, this pointing forward, foretelling of, of a, prof, a prophet who was to come. And so we'll want to think carefully about verses 15 through 19 as it prepares us for the Messiah, prepares us for Christ. So we'll, we'll be in chapter 18 and following next week. Uh, let, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your gracious provision in our lives, even as the people of God, as the, as the new covenant believers, as the church. But then even as we march through these texts in Deuteronomy, we just see your gracious provision amongst the people that you chose um, to be a people uh, of your choosing, your nation, you, have, you gave them a land and you gave them a plan as they went into the land, what, what it was going to look like, how they were to act, what they were to do, what they were not to do. And so, 
God, we're thankful for your provision of, of godly leadership. And so even for Israel, to think of what the demands were on the judge, the priest, the king, and the prophets. So then even for us in application as we seek in the life of the church, God, I pray that um, healthy churches would be led by godly leaders who seek to obey your word and, and proclaim your word. So I pray that would be what takes place today as we gather to worship, as we open up your word. May we think carefully about what we're reading. We need the spirit of God to work in our hearts to understand and apply the scriptures. So I pray we'd leave here better worshipers of you in light of all that is done today. Uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.